Please take your Bibles and turn with me this evening to the book of Psalms, and I would direct your attention to Psalm 3. Taking as our text this evening the third psalm, Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God, Selah. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory, and the lifter up of mine head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill, Selah. I laid me down and slept. I waked, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people. Selah. Psalm 3 has in history been often referred to as the morning psalm, and you get that from verse 5, I laid me down and slept, I awaked, for the Lord sustained me. Likewise, Psalm 4 was traditionally uh, referred to as the evening psalm, as you see in verse 4, where it says, uh, commune with thine own heart upon your bed and be still, verse 8, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell And safety. And while these two descriptions are appropriate, it's also helpful for us to uh, not overlook the connection between Psalm 3 and Psalm 4, the connection with these two to the first two Psalms, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. In Psalm 1, we have the description of the blessed man, uh, which we know is fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the quintessential blessed man of the Father. He is the one who meditates day and night upon God's law. We know that Psalm 2 is a description of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is uh, above and beyond David as David's son and David's Lord, the anointed who is seated upon the holy hill of Zion and who is set as a king uh, before the Lord. And you see in Psalm 2 how both at the beginning the nations are raging, they're they're casting off the cords of Christ, there's warnings about them uh, resisting him and so on. And then you come to Psalm 3 and we have a description of that, right? We have a description of resistance against the Lord's anointed, a revolt against the Lord and a refusal uh, to receive David as the king of Zion. And you'll note that the consequence in Psalm 3, they're, they're stricken on the cheekbone, their teeth are broken out, similar to the descriptions given to us in Psalm 2 of those who resist the Lord. But you'll note how in Psalm 1 and 2, we, we readily and easily connect the, the, the songs 
with the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet it is all too often the frequent move of most in our day that when they come to Psalm 3 to then disconnect the psalm from the Lord Jesus Christ. And this follows a general trend where uh, they, uh, men come, even evangelicals, to the book of Psalms and they classify certain psalms as messianic psalms. And that would include things like, you know, Psalm 40, Psalm 22, Psalm 40, 69, 110, and so on. And while we can appreciate that, and there's, there's nothing inherently wrong in, in identifying some of these in terms of being messianic psalms, the problem is that these songs are distinguished from all of the others. And many conclude that whereas we have messianic psalms on one hand, that the vast majority of other psalms are not songs about uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a fatal and unbiblical error. It is incorrect. It is a mistake. And we know that, first of all, because we see how the Bible itself treats the psalms. So we turn to the New Testament and we see, we can study carefully the New Testament use of the psalms. We'll note, for example, Jesus in Luke 24 telling his disciples uh, that, that Moses, the law, the prophets, and the psalms all spoke of himself and he unpacked uh, how they taught of, of him. And in, in that, we can say, well, well, then the Psalms are about Christ. But that's not all. We don't stop there because we go to places like Colossians 3 and we're told, let the word of Christ abide in you, dwell in you richly, singing with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs uh, unto the Lord and so on. And so there we see in Colossians 3, that, that these songs are actually the word of Christ, not just a word about him, but the word of Christ. And then we continue to read and we come, as we saw in our exposition of Hebrews, to chapter 2. And there we discover, in quoting from, from the Psalms, that Christ actually stands in the assemblies of his people and he sings in the midst of his people. He sings his his own songs. And now things are beginning to take shape. And we remember, of course, that David is a prophet and that he's functioning as a prophet in, in the penning, in the writing of these inspired songs. And that as such, as a prophet, he's not merely writing about himself. He's writing about much more than just himself. That becomes patently obvious in lots of places. Psalm 16, for example, where he speaks of his, the Lord's anointed, his body not seeing any corruption in the grave. David obviously was laid in a tomb and his body did corrupt and went back to dust and so on. It's a reference to something beyond David. It's a reference to David's greater son, to his Lord. It's a reference to the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. And so we come in the Gospels and it's no shock to us that in those four Gospels that the words of the Psalms are put or found in the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ, it seems, constantly. And especially, of course, when we come to Calvary. And there is Psalm 22 and Psalm 31 and Psalm 69. And Jesus is actually expressing his own heart through the words of, of these songs. But it doesn't stop there. You look at the apostles and they begin, after Christ's ascension, to, to preach the gospel 
And you look at the apostolic preaching and they do the same thing in Acts 2 and Acts 4 and Acts 13 in places like Romans 15. There they are using the Psalms to express and unpack the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You come to Hebrews 1, as we saw, one of the most Christocentric chapters in the New Testament in which we have set before us the glory of Jesus Christ and the glory of Christ is set forth by a citation of seven different psalms in order to show us the glory of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all of this begins to shape our thinking, and it begins to inform our approach to this Old Testament book. And what we discover is that this book is chiefly Christ's own songs, that these are his songs that they are the songs in which he speaks and in which he sings. That in fact, when we open these songs, whether to read them, sing them, or preach them, we are hearing the voice of Christ himself in the text. That Christ is speaking through David so that we hear behind David and above David the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Well, that is a paradigm shift for most. That is a game changer for us. Because then as we come to the book of Psalms, we're taught by the Bible itself that this book, book opens a window for us. That it opens first and foremost a window into the life and ministry and even internal experience of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That as we come to the book and as we come from psalm to psalm, we come chiefly to behold Christ and to hear Christ and to learn of Christ in these things. I mean, you, you see this exhibited in, in, in beautiful ways in, in our own church in the 19th century. Our disruption father, Hugh Martin, many of you will have read The Shadow of Calvary, phenomenal book on Christ at Gethsemane and his trial and arrest. And you see how Martin comes and he comes to the scene in Gethsemane and he parks on a text and then he begins to pull from all of the resources of the song of the Psalms and he places them into the context of Gethsemane and he opens up vistas of all that's going through Christ's mind and heart and experience and all that he's enduring there. You go to A.A. Bonar's book on the Psalms, Christ in the Church, and it's filled to the brim with this same thing. But that's not unique because they're actually drawing on an older approach to the Psalms, one that goes back to the early church in the patristic era, in which they saw the Psalms as a transcript of the inner life of Christ, that in the Psalms we have the echoes of Christ's own voice, so that the Psalms are not just about Christ, but first and foremost, they are the voice of Christ. This is Christ speaking out of his own person and out of his own experience. And so as we come to these songs, we expect to hear him and to be able in hearing him to enter in, to peer into all that belongs to his glorious person and his glorious work of redemption. That is first, I say. That is that is at the top. This is the most important thing in coming from psalm to psalm. 
And then it is only secondly, it is only after that, that we can then appreciate the fact that the psalm also speaks to Christ's body and of Christ's body, what, what Augustine called totus Christus, that we begin with the head that Christ himself is speaking, but then also Christ has a body. He has his church, which he's redeemed. And therefore, these songs become a living apart of, of their own experience, the church corporately descriptive of them as, as well, being identified with Christ as, as his body. And then thirdly, of course, what is true of the church corporately, what is true of the church as a whole, is exceedingly applicable individually to the individual believer, just as it was for David and Asaph and Ethan and so on. So much more for us, the individual believer being brought savingly into union with the Lord Jesus Christ are able to enter into these psalms so that they do become, as Calvin says, an anatomy of our own souls and expressing all of the various, the warp and woof of our own Christian experience. But that idea of the Christian coming and singing these songs, reading, meditating upon these songs, and applying them to our own circumstances is exceedingly enriched by beginning with Christ. How so? Because what happens is there's a whole other dimension here. It's exhilarating. Because what's actually happening is the believer is entering into communion with Christ. This was his song first. This was descriptive of him first. And now we, in union with him, are able to enter into that savingly through him. And thereby to hold communion with Christ in these songs. This actually accentuates the experimental element in the believer's interface with, with the songs. You think about this. These are, these are the words that Jesus himself expressed. He, he, of course, spoke them through David. And then in his incarnation, he entered into them. And these are the songs which he embodied and which he, in his life and ministry he lived out of and, and voiced himself. And now as we voice them, as, as the believer comes along behind and we sing them, and as we, we meditate upon them, we do so with a consciousness that our exalted Savior in heaven, that Christ's, the God-man's own heart, recalls from the throne how he himself had been comforted with these words. And so we are able, as it were, to, as Paul describes it, enter into having, for example, in this psalm, fellowship with Christ's sufferings. In the Psalms, we have a dimension of one of the avenues in which we enter into the fellowship with Christ's own sufferings. In other words, the Psalms are not recordings that we rewind and replay. They're not merely a record of what's taken place in the past with David or even taken place in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, this is a living word, right? It is living. It is active. It is powerful. This is the alive voice of the ascended shepherd. It's his voice that we're hearing. It's his voice that we are entering into. It's his voice 
that we are joining our voices with. And so I've chosen Psalm 3. This is a long introduction. I realize that. And you'll, you'll grant me that. It's not normal. But I've chosen Psalm 3 as a, as a quintessential example of this. Because no one would put Psalm 3 in what that, that arbitrary list of Messianic Psalms. Never quoted in the New Testament. No explicit references, as it were, to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But all that we've just heard from Scripture regarding how we come to the Psalms, I think is helpfully illustrated in this first Psalm after the opening preface of Psalm 1 and 2, which everyone recognizes in connection with the Lord Jesus Christ. So we come to Psalm 3 this evening. We're given in the Hebrew Bible the inspired title, and we see that there's, first of all, a historical and a literal context. David is pinning these words on the occasion when he fled Jerusalem from Absalom, his son. And so we can picture it. We can go back to 2 Samuel 15, 16, 17, 18. We, we need to do that. We read the historical context in order to get our minds wrapped around what's happening here. We can see David. There he is. Here is the Lord's chosen. Here is the anointed. Here is the man after God's own heart. Here is the one who, who, who meditated upon the, the law of God and so on. And where is he, children? He's ascending up Mount Olive, the Mount of Olives. He's fleeing from the city of Jerusalem. And as he ascends that mountain, he's weeping. And we look at him and we're told that he's barefoot. He's in a state of, of, of humiliation. And really, we can say, never has there been such a scene like this in Jerusalem prior to this one. Nothing depicted quite like this. Here is the Lord's own chosen king fleeing barefoot and tears falling from, from his face. And subsequently, Jerusalem swarms with enemies, right? The, the city is filled to the brim with those who are enemies of, of God and, and of his, his anointed. And so this is the context in which it's written. And, it, and so as we, we open it up, everything that we see in this psalm has to be in keeping with that with that context. You'll notice the Psalms divided neatly into three parts. A sila at the conclusion of, of each section. Among other things, we have good reason to believe that sila was a musical notation to pause and reflect. And so, first of all, we have this description of a host of foes, right? As far as the eye can see, this massive army of foes, and we're stopped, we're stopped to take it in. And then it goes on. And we, we hear the cry, the cry that is going up into the ear of God. We stop. We take all of that in. And then it goes on to speak about the security and the, repro the repose and the, the, um, the safety and the victory that comes from the Lord's hand with which the psalm concludes. We're going to note three things now as we, we seek and brief succession to consider this under three points. First of all, conflict. It opens with conflict in verses one and two. Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God, Selah. We said that it's a morning psalm. You can, you can almost picture it. Here is our own Lord, and he's aroused out of the slumber of the night. And he's greeted upon his 
arousal to consciousness with the realization that, that, that his foes are being multiplied, right? Here is our Lord who initially uh, began his ministry and he's healing the sick and he's casting out demons and he's feeding those who are hungry and he's instructing people in the kingdom of God and in the gospel. And there's, there's people who are attracted to him. They love the bread. They love the healings. They, they're following him and so on. And yet that, that continues to unfold, doesn't it? And as you're wa- working your way through the gospels, you, you see it viv- vividly as Jesus continues to preach His doctrine is found unacceptable. And so you come to John 6, verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. You go to chapter 8 and verse 31. And as he spake these words, many believed on him. Verse 31, then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. But we come to verse 59. And it says, then took they up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and so passed by. His his enemies are being multiplied. We see it early on, the devil, the arch enemy of Christ Jesus. The Lord is taken by the spirit into the wilderness. He's assaulted with great ferocity by the devil. There's swarms of demonic activity that are taking place all around him. The world at large sets themselves against him. John 7, verse 7, The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it, that the works thereof are evil. Jesus is saying, he's conscious of it. He's saying, the world hates me. They're they're against me and all that, that I'm doing. In chapter, back in Psalm 3, verse 2, many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. There is no help for him in God. In John 8, what do they say in verse 48? Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil? Right? There's no help for God in you. you you're, you're outside. You, you, you're, you're possessed of a devil and so on. And how this... Be, continues to, to grow so that in, in Mark 15 and verse 31, they say of the Lord Jesus Christ when he's on the cross, save thyself and come down from the cross. Or even more vividly in Matthew 27 and verse 43, he trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Is this not descriptive of the experience of our Lord? Many that say to his soul, there is no help for him in God. Even at his moment of greatest agony, how how he entered into songs like Psalm 3 and the expression of his, his own experience, not just said of him, but at the foot of the cross said to him, you're abandoned, you're desolate, God is against you, you've got no help from him. This is expressive of all that the Lord Jesus Christ endured. He had seen it up close, betrayed by one of his own, Judas, who gives him over to his enemies, denied by one of the very closest to him, Peter, a sword piercing through his soul. This is our Lord, is it not? 
This is the Lord's own song. This is descriptive of the Lord's own experience. But then, of course, this conflict is descriptive not only of, his, of our Lord, but also of his people, of his body, who are united to him. Because his people, we're told, he tells us, they hated me, they'll hate you. You know, the servant's not better than his Lord. He tells his church, you're going to have a taste. You're going to have a share in this, in, this, in this persecution as well. You're going to endure conflict. You're going to be rejected as well. In John 15, you see him counseling his people, his disciples, shortly before his death. And he's saying in verse 18, if the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own because you're not of the world. Servant is not greater than the master. They also, they will also persecute you. They will. These things are going to be done for my name's sake. You see how the Apostle Paul reinforces this in places like Ephesians chapter 4, speaking how we, we grow up into him in all things that is the Lord Jesus Christ, that we're, we're knit to him. And so we're going to have a share in the, in the sufferings of him. Right? Paul says in, in Philippians 3, you want to know him. You want to know him more than anything. Well, to know him means that I may know him in the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. Right? This is what it entails. And so the church has its expectation. This is our song, that, that we are going to, there will be many who will say to us, there is no help for God in him. And we can appropriate this. The individual believer can say, well, then therefore it's true of me specifically. Paul says to Timothy, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Not maybe, not possibly, but will. This will be the lot of the individual Christian. And there will be those who will misrepresent the Lord's people falsely. There will be those who malign the Lord's people. There will be those who say God is against you. That you're off, you're wrong. What you have done has been missteps and the Lord is, is against you. That will take place within the church itself. And there will be people who are absolutely persuaded in their own hearts and minds that they're right. Like the Jews were in Jesus' day. And they're dead wrong. And they'll say, the Lord, there's no help. No help for you in these things. The believer learns, the individual Christian learns, my happiness is not in the popularity of men. My happiness does not hang on the praise of men. Our Lord Jesus Christ said that he came to do the will of his Father. He said that in all things he sought to please him. Popularity of men, praise of men, no. The believer sets their heart to please him. To please the Lord himself. That's where happiness is. Is the Lord smiling upon our ability hum with humility and by grace and through the help of the Spirit to stick to the book and to follow his word? His smile is all our happiness, not the smiles of men. Can you see here now how, how the believer's heart, our hearts are knit with Christ's heart? You know, we, we are actually entering in experimentally 
into the experience of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We're hearing his own voice and we're stepping in, as it were, to communion with him in these things. Secondly, there is confidence, confidence in God, verses 3 and 4. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of mine head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ, and as he ever did, he's looking up. He's looking up to the Father. He goes up into the mountain late into the night, early in the morning. He's there before the Father who sees everything, the Father who knows everything. And Jesus, the God-man, pours out his heart to the Father. Oh, thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of my head. Here is the man who is constantly in prayer, even in his most ex ex excruciating circumstances. Hebrews 5, verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard and that he feared. We see it here in Psalm 3. Here is the source of Christ's help. The Father who sees. The Father who hears. And so what does Jesus do? He, he takes refuge behind God, his Father, who is to him a shield. The sky is full of all of the fiery darts of the devil being shot against him. All of the, the gnashing of teeth and the all of the accusations that are brought against him and everything else. And Jesus says, thou art a shield for me. He finds God to be his shield and his glory and the uplifter of his head. The Father's glory. The Father's love. He can see, ah, here, the Father is the one who will lift up my head. My head, which would be beaten down otherwise. My head, which would be cast down otherwise. He's the lifter up of my head. Is this not what lies behind the words of Christ's own prayer? In John 17, where in verse 4, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self. With the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Father, lift up mine head. O oh, Father, who art the glory, give me that I would have a share, as is my right, in that glory. Amidst all this conflict, there's no despair with Christ. If anyone had cause for despair, it's him. He has no despair. There's confidence here. Why? Because he recognizes that men are ultimately fighting against God. I cried unto the Lord with my voice. He heard me out of his holy hill. He recognizes that prayer is a mighty weapon to be wielded before the Lord and in this fallen and hostile world. Ultimately, they're fighting against him. Beat your brains out against this shield. 
hidden behind the shield of God. Do all in your power to deface this glory. It's impossible. The Lord is our glory. It's impossible to deface that glory. Unconquerable. Because the Lord is the lifter up of the head. And so it is for the Lord's people. He is the shield of the church. The church takes, runs behind the shield. And indeed we can say as Christ ran behind the shield, we run behind the shield. And in another sense, Christ is the shield and the glory. And with the Father and the Spirit, the lifter up of, of the heads of his people. And so the believer is able to cry out, not in exasperation, but in confidence. That just as the Father was the shield of the Son, so Father, Son, and Spirit remain the shield to the church in the Son. So that in union with the Son, we have a shield and a share in that same shield. It's not a different one. It's not a smaller one. It's not one like his shield. It's one in the same. So that we are finding shelter in the same place and in the same way. And that shield which was able to extinguish all of the darts of the enemies was able to shield us as well. What pierces, threatens to pierce the heart of the Lord's people, pierce the heart of the Lord himself, and he will lift up mine head. Christian can appropriate this in Jesus Christ. The Christian can say only because it's in Christ. God, Jehovah, the lifter up of mine head, the lifter up of mine own head. He who is the glory of his people will glorify his people. We can extrapolate and apply this in a million ways. Ultimately, where is this found, friends? It's found in the resurrection of the dead. We're laid in the dust, maybe martyred. We die in the service of the great king. And it would appear to men buried in the dirt to return to the dust from which we came. But the believer goes into that grave with this word. The Lord is the uplifter of mine head. And in the, on the last day, the Lord glorifies his people. Our heads are lifted up above the highest heavens to sit with the Lord upon his own throne. But even in this world, is it not so? The Lord causing his church to be the glory, the reflection of his glory in this world. This is a dark, bleak, terrible, fallen, sin-cursed world at enmity with God. And the church is the glory. In the midst of this world, not only is the voice, the cry uttered, but it is heard. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill. Right? Those words from Hebrews 5, 7, and was heard, it says. Jesus cried with supplications and tears and was heard. And so it is for the Lord's people. So it is that we are heard in him, through him, in his mediation, intercessions, all of our whimpers, all of the inaudible groans, all of the audible cries. They reach heaven. They reach the ear of the Almighty. They are brought before the throne 
they are heard. And so we are able to sleep. Verses 5 and 6. You know, you've no doubt scratched your head at this yourself. Our Lord, so many problems, so many trials, so many burdens. You know, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes to the cross, he's emaciated. Right? They can see his bones. The Psalms tell us that. How do you get there? I mean, that didn't happen overnight. That came from much fasting. That came from overwhelming stresses. That came from shedding pounds under the enormous weight that he was shouldering as the sin bearer and so on. How is he able to sleep? And yet he is. There is Jesus in the midst of a tempestuous storm and the ruckus waves and the wind and everything so that professional fishermen are at their wits end and Jesus is sound asleep in the boat. He's able to sleep. I laid me down and slept. I awaked for the Lord sustained me. This is the Lord's own experience. His father sustaining him so that he's able to sleep in these circumstances. To rest in the midst of enemies. You would think that he'd have to sleep with one eye open because he has so many people out to kill him. He trusted in the father. And in the father's hands, he's untouchable. There's nothing that anyone can do until the time comes when he himself voluntarily presents himself to accomplish the work that he's come to. The believer has this. You have sleepless nights, friends. You're unable to sleep at times. There are good reasons for that, and there are bad reasons for that. And the bad reasons sometimes can be fears, anxieties, worries, unbelief, all those things, the mind swirling and so on. But the believer is in the Jesus Christ. We're able to enter into, into this psalm. This, this becomes ours. We actually enter into communion with Christ in it and say, I laid me down and slept. I waked for the Lord sustained me. I can sleep. I will not be afraid of ten, ten thousands of people. All that have set round again. What are ten thousands? What are ten millions? What are ten trillions of people said about me? If the Lord's sustaining me. Resting, repose, safety, confidence. Not in ourselves. Not in others, but in the Lord himself. Not careless, but confident in him. Well, thirdly, there's the cry that comes up to God. Verses 7 and 8, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone, and thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon my people. Here is a call, a prayer with certainty. Here is the exercise of faith, the God-man the Lord Jesus Christ exercised faith in absolute sinless perfection. Everywhere and always. In his human nature, this reflects that faith, knowing that he will always be heard. You know, enemies, his enemies thought they could do what they want. They thought that they were free. They thought they were right. That they were on God's side and they were wrong. But they also thought they were free to do as they wish. They could plot and plan against him. They could stone him and attempted to do, do so and weren't able at times. 
They thought they could set up a, a snare, catch him, kill him, do what they wanted. They could bring false accusations against him, speak evil against the Lord's anointed, and so on and so forth. But it's all a fool's errand. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. He will repay. He will retaliate. It's not for us. But it is for us to leave it with him. To pray that the Lord would arise expose and defeat his enemies and deliver his people. That is appropriate. And we have, we have the Lord's own example. Peter draws on it in 1 Peter 2, verse 23. Speaking of Christ, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. What's he doing? He's committing it to the Father. Arise, O Lord, it's in your hands. You deal with it. Peter says this is an example for us. The Lord Jesus Christ himself does this. He knows God will smite the ungodly. That the Lord will defeat his and our enemies. He defeats Christ's enemies. And only because of that do we have a share. Because Christ's enemies are our enemies. And, and, and the description's rather graphic, isn't it? I mean, it, it's not just, um, well, they'll go down to the grave or something. It's descriptive of a powerful punch to the face. Arise, O Lord, and punch their face in. Smite them on the cheekbone. Break that big bone at prominent in the face. Smash their teeth out of their mouth. It's a knockout punch. What's the point? The point is that the Lord never leaves and forsakes his people. He does deliver his people. He delivers his, his son. His son offers himself as a sacrifice. He's risen from the dead. He's ascended. He's exalted to the right hand of God in heaven. The Lord never leaves or forsakes his own son. And so never turns a blind eye. And so will never Leave or forsake his own people. This psalm is quoted somewhere. I told you it wasn't quoted in the New Testament. I didn't say it wasn't quoted at all. Where is this psalm quoted? Where is verse 8 quoted? The answer to that question is helpful because it shows how the individual believer appropriates these things in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's quoted by Jonah. Jonah 2 verse 9 in the belly of the whale. Jonah, like every Old Testament Jew, knew these psalms inside and out, backward and forward, had most, if not all, of them memorized, as did the early church. And he draws upon Psalm 3 in the belly of the whale. Salvation belongeth unto Jehovah. The Lord, is, the Lord comes to us as individuals and we're able to say, yes, the Lord will arise and will save me. Arise, O Lord, and save me, O my God. In Jesus Christ, salvation belongs to him. Blessings 
are bestowed by him. There is safety and security in him. There is a quiet confidence in the Lord. All of Balak's attempts to curse are going to be transformed into benediction and blessings. The Lord will bring salvation to his people, body and soul. The Lord will bestow, pronounce, follow, pursue his people all their days, time and eternity, with blessing. You know what this psalm reflects at the end? Victory known before enjoyed. In the first instance, David was on his way out of Jerusalem. It was true in the life of our Lord. Victory known before enjoyed. These were the words of our Lord in his earthly ministry prior to the resurrection and ascension. These are the words of the Lord's people. We can know with confidence the victory. We can enter into a sense of that victory even before we actually experience and enjoy it to its fullness. We have that in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Safety, security, the quiet repose, the victory, the confidence in the Lord. Salvation belongeth unto him. Thy blessing is upon thy people. Wonderful thing, isn't it? To be numbered among the visible people of God is to be in the place of divine blessing. We have a benediction pronounced at every service. That's Christ speaking and pronouncing his own benediction upon the lives of his people. We see here then how even in Psalm 3, how all these things are brought together. My, my, my hope this evening with the Lord's blessing is for you to not only understand Psalm 3, but to be deepened in your acquaintance with every other psalm along with it. We come to the song first as the voice of Christ expressing himself. We see how his body has a share in union with Christ in that, and that therefore the individual believer is able to appropriate and apply it. But it's always in that order, from head to body to the individual members. Head, body, individual members. These songs are chiefly the word of Christ. They are chiefly about Christ. Well, may the Lord bless these meditations. Let's stand for prayer. Our gracious and eternal God in heaven, our everlasting Father, we come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ through his mediation by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that Spirit of Christ. And we are thankful, O Lord, for these songs. We're thankful, O Lord, that they were first and foremost and always the songs of thine own beloved Son. And we are thankful that they are made our songs in him. Give to us, O Lord, that we would find our place behind the shield, our refuge, our consolation, that we, stooped behind that glorious shield, would look with confidence to the uplifting of our heads in Christ, that as he has been lifted up, so we lifted up 
in him, with him, by him. O Lord, draw out our hearts to adore our Redeemer, for we ask these things in his blessed name. Amen.